Living Local, telling the stories that connect us. A United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast. Here is the second part of the ex-fabula fatherhood storytelling event, which United Way was able to be a part of back in February 2016. This episode begins with an introduction and story from Tehran Edwards, Men's Wellness Project Coordinator at Walnut Way, which was another partner in this night of true personal stories all about fatherhood. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to Exfabula for having me. <laughs> well, um, fatherhood, you know, has taken me some amazing places in my life. You know, fatherhood is my life. Um, for those who don't know me, for the past 15 years, I've been doing fatherhood and manhood work in this community. <laughs> um, and, you know, my fatherhood journey, like I said, it's taking me some awesome places, you know. Um, my fatherhood journey, though, kind of starts with my own personal fatherhood journey. And, you know, I was born, you know, in Flint, Michigan, you know, just like, you know, average ordinary kid, you know, I had my mother and my father, you know, they were married. You know, my dad, he was not a nine to five guy, he was a street guy. You know, anyway, long story short, he was murdered when I was 10 years old, you know. Awesome story, sad story, but that ain't the tale I came to talk about today. Anyway, losing my dad young, you know, kind of did some things to me as it does to a lot of young men in this community that I work with here to this day. I grew up with a lot of anger, you know, um, made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of wayward things, made a lot of decisions that I'm not gonna talk about on stage because I'm too old for the penitentiary. <laughs> but I will say, one of those so-called questionable mistakes was becoming a dad myself at the age of 16. Becoming a dad, you know, I like to stand here and say that, you know, just automatically just made me just do a 360. You know, I stopped doing dumb stuff and, you know, I never messed up again. But truth of the matter is, I hit my head again several times. You know, at 19, my second son came. Well, long story short, Around then, that's kind of when I decided to make some decisions. You know, wasn't for myself. I just decided to be somebody better for somebody else. That just kind of became my mantra for life. And that crude vision of being somebody for somebody else led to a crude goal, which eventually led to a mission, which eventually led to a life mission, you know, of being somebody to, for somebody else and eventually helping other men be somebody for somebody else. I'm now proud to say that, you know, I am the, you know, founder, custodian, whatever, of not one but two manhood initiatives here in Milwaukee. You know, we got One No Way Men's Wellness, and we got Fathers Making Progress. <laughs> as much as I love my brothers, that's not the tale I came to talk about either. What I'm gonna talk about today is a young man by the name of Manuel Cruz. Now, like I said, fatherhood has done some awesome things for me. You know, along the lines, I've been able to travel around the country, in some cases around the world, and you know, tell my story, take some of the other guys, let them tell their story, and you know, just really help to just, you know, spread the spark, you know, and spread just some of the you know, awesome things that we're able to do 
you know, during our time in our groups. Um, one such occasion was, uh, you know, excursion. You know, I was with a group of people who was able to go down to Havana, Cuba about six months ago. You know, we went down, you know, as a part of a team to observe neighborhoods, health cares, just like, you know, my good friend LaShondra Vernon just shared. Um, <laughs> you know, Milwaukee is home to some of the worst health disparities among, you know, black and brown children as compared to white children, you know, uh, in the world. You know, the, the babies down in Havana, Cuba, a country that is broadcast as a quote-unquote third world country, are do, they're doing much better than our children are here. So that's one of the things we had a chance to observe. So that was a life-changing experience. You know, down in Havana, you know, got to see some great communities, got to you know, hear some great music, got a chance to eat some great food, yeah. and got a chance to have some awesome room. <laughs> um, one of the days with my group, you know, ran out of currency. You know, um, it was about six or seven of us headed out to dinner that night. Long story short, you know, uh, folks were hungry. Not everybody ran out of currency, so those of us that didn't bring enough money, you know, we were kind of left to fend for ourselves. So uh, we got some crude instructions to go back to a bank that was open, you know, and make an exchange in downtown Havana, Cuba. Um, why of the three of us, you know, no one can speak Spanish. <laughs> All we had was a crude translator book, but hey, you know, we were brave. <laughs> we were young, so we went out and did it. You know, um, anyway, we get to the bank. We got lucky enough to get to the bank. Um, we get to the bank. Apparently, the site is closed down. It's up for renovation. It's not there anymore. You know, we're frustrated. You know, we we worked hard just to even get to the bank. You know, we you know used our broken, horrible Spanish and <laughs> talked to the you know talked to the natives and bothered people and messed with people on their way to work. You know, anyway, you know we're getting frustrated because we're hungry. We have no money. You know, uh, so we're just asking people, and you know, right on my left side, I hear a guy say, "Plain as day, I know where the bank is." I turn around. It's a gentleman, black gentleman, about 45 years old, probably about six foot one, kind of resembles Snoop Dogg if he cut off all his hair. <laughs> anyway, um, he said, "Yeah, the bank is right over there." He has, a, he has, a, you know, has a shopping cart with him. You know, kind of looks. Looks like a working man, you know. He has a shopping cart with him full of, uh, you know, uh, metal and products. You know, he would be what we would call here a junk man. You know, he's probably on his way to the, you know, recycling center, you know, get him some money for the day. So anyway, you know, he said, I'll show you where it is. So me just being me and just being interested in people's stories and being interested in, in men in general, I just started asking some questions. Man, how do you learn how to speak English so good? I mean, because he sounds like somebody from right off of 35th and North. Like, like right outside the door. You know, I close my eyes. I mean, I hear like some of my uncles or something, man. It's, it was a trip. So anyway, I asked him, like, how'd you learn how to speak English so well? He's like, well, you know, I spent some time in the States. You know, in fact, I spent about 20 years in the States. I lived in Chicago. You know, I lived in Green Bay. <laughs> I lived in Milwaukee. <laughs> and by this time, I'm starting to think like, because, you know, I've been in the Caribbean before. I'm like, man, am I getting hustled? You know, because I've been to Jamaica several times. You know, anybody who's been to Jamaica, <laughs> Jamaica's got some of the LeBron James of hustlers down in Jamaica. <laughs> so, so I'm just like, okay, whatever, you know, just I let him tell the story. But then he starts to talk about places like Thurgood Marshall. Then he starts to talk about places like being, you know, I asked him how he got off to Green Bay, you know, because in the, in, the, in, the, in the early 90s, there weren't many of us up in Green Bay. 
<laughs> and he starts to talk about being in Green Bay Correctional Facility. And what really made me know that this wasn't the story, he wasn't just pulling my chain, is he started to talk about those big green steel bars. Anybody who's been up to Green Bay Correctional Facility, you know, I've been up, you know, to, to visit guys and to just kind of spread the word and to re recruit, you know, for, for the group or whatever. So, man, I'll tell you, it's, it, to this day, it's like 1930s, you know, it looks like the Green Mile in there. So, <laughs> you know, he's like, I can never forget that sound when you hear that clink. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's been to Green Bay. <laughs> so, come to find out, you know, he is a young man. It's funny, you know, just hearing the story, he grew up kind of like me, lost his father when he was young. He grew up kind of like me, had a lot of anger behind it. He grew up like me, you know, uh, ran with the rank, wrong, wrong crowd. I mean, I never murdered anybody like he did. But anyway, uh, you know, he killed someone in the early 90s, ended up in prison, ended up early 80s, ended up in prison, and was actually a part of, does anyone remember when Castro trying to open the prisons and allow people to go to the US? He was a part of that. That's how he got to the country. Um, anyway, got to the country, had no friends and family. Um, Ended up, you know, back in with a bad crowd. You know, um, long story short, ended up in prison. You know, found out that he had a child on the way. You know, um, got out of prison. Unfortunately, you know, he's making some strides, but, you know, long story short, just as what happens to us a lot of times when we go to prison and we have these, you know, kind of fractured relationships behind, you know, he comes home and the young lady's with someone else. Uh, he didn't take that too well. Domestic situation for him, that was strike three, sent him back home. You know, so anyway, um, I kept up with him the whole time I was in Cuba. He came to see me the last day, and you know, and it's funny because the time before that, you know, we had dinner, and he's, he asked me, he's like, man, can you do me a big favor before you go home? You know, I'm just thinking to myself, like, man, I wonder if he's going to want some shoes, a Jabari Parker jersey, what is it going to be? So <laughs> the big favor was he gave me uh, his child's mother information. He gave me his 16-year-old daughter's name and told me that last time he checked, about two years ago, they were in Milwaukee, and he wanted me to look them up. Me being a fatherhood advocate, man, I had no choice but to do that. You know, I wish I could stand up here and say that I found them. I have been looking. You know, unfortunately, I haven't, but I'll continue to look. You know, but I guess the moral of the story is, you know, is you know, all around the world, you know, we, we as men, you know, just work to do better and to be better, you know, for the next generation. That's all I got. Thank you. Sometimes when I am out and about in Milwaukee, I meet people who know my parents. Uh, they're both elected officials here in Milwaukee County, so that we're here on election day seems very fitting. Uh, my dad is State Representative Fred Kessler, and my mom is a judge on the Court of Appeals, Joan Kessler. Hell yeah, thank you. Give it up for my parents. They're awesome. Um, so the story that I'm going to tell is the the talk story. Now, those of you who know my parents know that their politics are very progressive. So you may, yes, again, let's give it up for progressives. All right, we can go with that. Um, however, they were very strict parents. 
All those progressive values, those are very important for your children. So the basic rule in my family when I was growing up was that you can listen to anything you want, you can read anything you want, you can watch movies, television, anything you want, you cannot do anything. <laughs> and that rule was really crystal clear. My family hosted an exchange student my sophomore year, Isabel. She was a week older than I am. And the we weren't allowed to have boys upstairs. So the last day that Isabel was in town, there were like 17 people crammed into our room to say goodbye. We were all crying and helping her pack. And uh, two of the 17 people were boys, and I knew that I was breaking the rule, but I felt that I was well within the spirit of the rule. I mean, there were 17 people in the room. Nothing inappropriate was happening unless you count sobbing hysterically. And um, we sobbed our way back downstairs when it was time to take Isabel to the airport. We sobbed the entire way to O'Hare. Isabel and I stood there sobbing in the airport. And then we got back in the car, uh, me and mom and dad, and I got in trouble for having had boys upstairs. <laughs> so, um, fast forward to it's time for me to go to college. And my first year, I went to college out at a tiny little hippie college in Portland, Oregon called Reed College. Dad decided that what he was going to do was drive me the 2,000 miles from Milwaukee to Oregon in the Volkswagen camper pop top somewhere in Montana. It's dusk, and I am driving. And all of a sudden, Elizabeth? Yes, Dad? Because I am only Elizabeth if something terrible is about to happen or I am in very big trouble. Elizabeth was the one who got in trouble for having the boys in her room. Elizabeth? Your mother and I hope that you understand that we think it's very important that uh, sex is something that's very special and should only be shared with somebody that you're planning on spending the rest of your life with. <laughs> now, up until that point, I did not realize that was only one word. Um, but, as it turns out, it is. And uh, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't, uh, how, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? I can't look at him, thank God. He planned that part really well. And then... I swear God spoke to me, and the correct answer came to me, whole and complete. And I said, yes, Dad, I understand. My dad was always extremely supportive of me. And for a long time, I didn't realize exactly what that meant or how supportive he really was. When I was a little girl, in fact, I was sometimes embarrassed by my dad because even though he came to all of my open houses and all of my plays and everything that I was doing, he, he didn't come the way that normal dads came. He rode a bike. And to me, that was extraordinarily embarrassing because he wasn't like a normal dad who put a tie on and got in a car. He was this guy that uh, got on a bike and it was a brown three-speed Huffy, which to me was not even a cool bike. 
And he drove around and checked out just about everything that I was doing. One time, he came to a play that I was in with Girl Scouts, and he was standing in the back of the room, and the Girl Scout leader came out, and the room was filled with mothers sitting in the audience except for my one dad. And she walked out, and she said, good afternoon, mothers. And then she saw my dad in the back row, and she said, and father, singular, Father, I was backstage. I felt embarrassed because I didn't have a mother in the audience. I had a father who, for philosophical and health-related reasons, chose to rode a, ride a bike in all weather. Now, of course, this is something that I would realize down the road exactly how cool that really was and how much I was very proud of him, but that would take many years for me to understand. I did, however, slowly begin to understand the support. And maybe that's because as I aged, I started to do weirder and weirder things on stage. And my dad was always there. There was the whole stint with the pagan punk rock band. We had a hit, non-hit, called Nancy Reagan Was a Pagan. <laughs> then there was the time I was in the show where the woman tap danced naked. There was my dad in the back of the room, eyes wide open, just shaking his head, thinking, wow. Then there was the whole time that I thought that I was going to try being a ventriloquist, but I actually would refer to myself as more of an amateur ventriloquist. I never quite got the B sounds or the V sounds without moving my lips, and yet there I was on stage, sometimes not with a doll, but with a human dummy, that in the end it was really awkward. One of the skits, we ended up just like kind of oddly making out and turning it into this weird dummy ventriloquist performance piece. I don't know what happened there. It was just all spontaneous uh, theatrics. But my dad was there for all of it. And at the end of every performance, I would walk up to him, and he would say to me, you know, kid, I wouldn't have chose this, but you were great. <laughs> he continued to support me when I smashed the car, when I dropped out of college to go on tour with the Grateful Dead for three and a half months. When I got divorced, he was always there. I said to myself over and over again, if there is any way that I can support him, that I can give back to him someday, I will. I thought about someday maybe I'll make a lot of money and I'll repay him for all those times that he slipped me those 20s or took me to lunch at Ma Fisher's. But the thing is, is that I didn't really have the chance until my dad got sick. And then he got really, really sick. And I don't know if the cancer spread to the brain or if it was the combination of the Parkinson's medication and the cancer drugs, and everything started to happen really fast, and my really smart professor dad with the dry wit and the wonderfully sharp mind completely started to lose it. He started to say and do things that were not right. 
And finally, the day before it would all end for him, the day before he was lying so frail in his hospital bed, and he looked at me with these eyes that were so scared, just like a little boy, and he said to me, what am I supposed to do? And I said, you're supposed to go now. And he looked at me and he said, will you come with me? And I thought about the Girl Scout play, and I thought about the naked tap dancers, and I wanted to say yes. But of course, my dad asked me for something, and I wanted to support him, but the only thing I could say was no. I grew up without my father. My father left us when we were, I was five years old. Never really got a chance to meet him, never talked to him on the phone, anything of that nature. So growing up, I always had this desire for a father or to be a father. It became like, it became a drive for me that I wanted to be somebody's daddy, right? Even to the point where when my girlfriend was pregnant by someone else, I told her I was the father and we were going to pretend that way. Now that's, <laughs> so... <laughs> TMI, maybe, but it's okay. It's okay. We're sharing. We're sharing. Stand by. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I had this longing to become a father. And I don't know if it was just a father. I don't know if it was just to be a father uh, or if it was to take care of someone as my mother and my grandfather had taken care of me. Um, I got that opportunity, and uh, in, in 1992, I became a father for the first time. Right? And... I love the boy to this day. I kept him around. You know, I didn't give him away or nothing. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so as, as, as life went on, and about, I had two sons. And about 2006, after, uh, after being a widower and um, being divorced, I was a single father with two children. And I found a woman who became the love of my life. We met in 2006, and we never separated. She had two sons, I had two sons. So then I was becoming a father of a blended family. I was transitioning once again from just a single father and then a married father and then a widowed father. You know, I was, I was really transitioning in fatherhood. But at the time, I really didn't notice it. To me, it was an everyday kind of struggle. You know, they've got to get to school, they've got to eat. You know, they can't wear the same underwear all the time. You know, we got to do something. At night, we can't just watch TV. We got to get up. They got to be educated. Right? So, okay, in 2006, I met my current wife. She had two children, two sons as well. And it just so happened that they were all around the same ages. So as life moved on, we began to have life. Uh, we got in, I don't want to say trouble, but we got pregnant. Okay? And... I, <laughs> Don't, don't quote me on the, on the date, but it was probably 2007 or so, and we were, we were pregnant. Unfortunately, I also had to experience the, uh, the fatherhood. I, in, in my fatherhood, I also had experienced losing a child, so we miscarried. And at the time, we didn't want to go through this again. We had, we had, you know, four sons. We were fine. Everybody was doing great. Uh, two of our older sons were getting ready to go to college. Uh, the other two were in the middle of high school. We were, you know, we were fine. So I made an appointment to go and have a vasectomy. I was going to cut it, and we weren't going to do it again. All right? So, um, however, I, I procrastinated. 
and my procrastination caused us to get pregnant again. And now we have five sons. The youngest is now four, and the oldest is 25. But through all of these experiences, fatherhood has taught me so much. That longing for someone to express my love to was, you know, was being, is always being fulfilled. Now I have the pleasure of trying to, uh, is trying to pay attention to their lives and see where I can fit in. I try to figure out one thing that they like that I can learn more about so I can be a better father for them. So that I can address that one thing for each one of them. The one thing that I did not have. It would have saved me from a lot of trouble, but then again, the experiences that I had brought me to the point I am today. Thank you, have a good evening. Thank you to our storytellers, Teron Edwards, Lizza Kessler, Molly Snyder, and Sean Mitchell. Thank you also to Xfabula for sharing their audio of this night and for agreeing to let us rebroadcast these stories. To learn more about Xfabula, including upcoming show dates, check out their website, www.xfabula.org. That's E-X-F-A-B-U-L-A dot O-R-G. We have also linked to this website in the blog post that goes along with this episode. A special thank you to Ethan and Maeve McCaig for providing the music and voice talent for our introduction. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Rebecca Shimke, Melissa Hannon, and Brian McCaig. Interested in supporting our podcast? We are looking for sponsors at every level to help us underwrite the cost of production and to help us continue sharing the stories that connect us. For information and to get involved, visit our website, unitedwaygmwc.org podcast.